Book Two, Chapter Eleven of *The Branding Iron* by Catherine Newland Burt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Eleven, The Clean Wild Thing. The Reverend Francis Hollowell. Morena turned the card over and over in his hand. Hollowell, Hollowell, Frank Hollowell. Yes, one of the fellows that had dropped out. Big, athletic youngster. Left college in his junior year and studied for the ministry. Fine chap. Popular. Especially decent to him when he had begun to play that difficult role of a man without a country. Now here was the card of the Reverend Francis Hollowell, and the man himself, no doubt, waiting below. Jasper tried to remember. He'd heard something about Frank. Oh, yes. The young clergyman had given up a fashionable parish in the East. Small Norman church, wealthy parishioners, splendid stipend, beautiful stone Norman rectory, thrown it all up to go west on some unheard-of mission in the sagebrush. He was back now, probably for money, donations wanted for a building, church, or hospital, or library. Jasper, in imagination, wrote out a generous check. Before going down, he glanced at the card again, and noticed some lines across the back. This is to introduce one of my best friends, Pierre Landis of Wyoming. Please be of service to him. His mission has and deserves to have my full sympathy. So, after all, it wasn't Hollowell below, and the checkbook would not be needed. Pierre Landis of Wyoming. Jasper went down the stairs, and on the way he remembered a letter received from Yarnall a long time before. He remembered it with an accession of alarm. I've probably let hell loose for your protege, Jane, given your address, and incidentally hers, to a fellow who wants her pretty badly. His name's Pierre Landis. You're a pretty good judge of white men. Size him up and do what's best for Jane. For some time after receiving this letter, Jasper had expected the appearance of this Pierre Landis, then had forgotten him. The fellow who wanted Jane so badly had been a long while on his way to her. Remembering and wondering, the manager opened the crimson curtains and stepped into the presence of Pierre. Even if he had had no foreknowledge, Jasper felt that, at sight of his visitor, his fancy would have jumped to Joan. It was the eyes. He had seen no others but hers like them for clarity far-seeing, grave eyes that held a curious depth of light. Here was one of Joan's kindred, one of the clean wild things. Then came the gentle western drawl. "'I'm right sorry to trouble you, Mr. Marina.' Jasper took a brown hand that had the feel of iron. The man's face, on a level with Jasper's, was very brown and lean." It had a worn look, a trifle desperate perhaps, in the lines of lip and the expression of the smoke-colored eyes. Jasper, sensitive to undercurrents, became aware that he stood in some fashion 
for a forlorn hope in the life of this Pierre. At the same time the manager remembered a confidence of Jane's. She had been afraid of someone. She had been running away. There was one that mustn't find her, and to run away from him, that was the business of her life. Pierre Landis was this one, the something wild and clean that had at last come searching even into this city. It was necessary that Jane's present protector should be very careful. There must be no running away this time, and Pierre must be warned off. Jasper had plans of his own for his star player. For one thing, she must draw Prosper Gale completely out of Betty's life. Jasper made his guest comfortable, sat opposite to him, and lighted a cigarette. Although Pierre had accepted one, he did not smoke. He was far too disturbed. "'Frank Hollowell gave me a note to you, Mr. Marina. I got your address some years ago from Yarnall of Lazy Y Ranch, Middle Fork, Wyoming. I've been getting my affairs into shape ever since, so that I could come east.' I don't rightly know whether Yarnall would have wrote to you concerning me or no. Yes, he did write, just a line, two years ago. Pierre studied his long brown hands, turning the soft hat between them. When he lifted his eyes, they were intensely blue. It was as though blue fire had consumed the smoke. I've been taken after a girl. She was called Jane on Yarnell's ranch, and she was cook there for the outfit. Nobody knows her story nor her name. She left the morning I came in, and I didn't set eyes on her. You were taking her east to teach her to play-act for you. I don't know whether you'd done so or not, but I've come here to learn where she is so that I can find out if she's the woman I'm looking for. Morena smiled kindly. "'You've come a long way, Mr. Landis, on an uncertainty.' "'Yes, sir.' Pierre did not smile. He was holding himself steady. "'But I'm used to uncertainty. There ain't no uncertainty that can keep me from seeking after the person I want.' He paused, the eyes still fixed upon Morena, who, uncomfortable under them, veiled himself thinly in cigarette smoke. "'I want to see this, Jane,' Pierre ended gently. "'Nothing easier, Landis. I'll give you a ticket to the Leopardess. She is acting the title part. She is my leading lady and a very extraordinary young actress. Of course, it's none of my business, but in a way I am Miss West's guardian.' "'Miss West?' "'Yes, that is Jane's name, Jane West.' You think it is an assumed one? Pierre stood up. I'm not thinking on this trip, he said. I'm hoping. I am sorry, but I'm afraid you're on the wrong track. There may be a resemblance, there may even be a marked resemblance, between Miss West and the person you want to find, but, again, please forgive me, I am in the place of guardian to her at present and I should like to know something of your business, enough of it, that is, to be sure that your sudden appearance, if you happen to be right in your surmise, 
won't frighten my leading lady out of her wits and send her off to Kalamazoo on the next train. Pierre evidently resented the fashion of this speech. I'm sorry, he said with dignity, not to be able to tell you anything. I'll be careful not to frighten Miss West. I can see her first from a distance and then... Certainly, certainly. Jasper rang and directed his man to get an envelope from an upstairs table. When it came, he handed it to Pierre. That is a ticket for tomorrow night's performance. It's the best seat I can give you, though it's not very near the stage. However, you will certainly be able to recognize your Jane, if she is your Jane. Pierre pocketed the ticket. Thank you, he murmured. His face was expressionless. Jasper was making rapid plans. Oh, by the way, he said hurriedly, if you should stand near the stage exit tonight, say at about twelve o'clock, you could see Miss West come out and get into her motor. That would give you a fairly close view. But even if you find you are mistaken, Landis, be sure to see the leopardess. It's well worth your while. You're going? Won't you dine with me tonight? No, thank you. I wouldn't be caring to tonight. I, I reckon I've got this matter too much on my mind. Thank you very much, Mr. Marina. Before you go, tell me about Hollowell. He was a good friend of mine. He was a good friend to most everyone he knowed. He was more than that to me. Then he's been a success out there? Pierre meditated over the words. Success? Why, yes, I reckon he's been all of that. A difficult mission, isn't it? Trying to bring you fellows to God? Pierre smiled. I reckon we get closer to God out there than you do here. We sure get the fear of him, even if we don't get nothing else. When you fight winter and all outdoors and come near to death with hosses and what's not, why, I guess you're getting close to something not quite to be explained. Hollowell, he's a first-class sin-buster, best I ever knowed. Morena laughed. He was beginning to enjoy his visitor. Sin-buster? That's one name for a parson. Well, sir, I guess Hollowell is plumb close to being a prize devil-twister. Tell me how you first met him. It ought to be a good story. But the young man's face grew bleak at this. It ain't a good story, sir, he said grimly. It ain't anything like that. I must wish you good-bye, and thank you kindly. But you'll let me see you again? Where are you stopping? Hollowell's friends are mine. Pierre gave him the address of a small downtown hotel, thanked him again, and, standing in the hall, added, If I'm wrong in the notion that brought me to New York, I'll be going back again to my ranch, Mr. Marina. I'm going back to ranching on the old homestead. I've got it fixed up. He seemed to look through Jasper into an enormous distance. Marina was almost uncannily aware of the long, long journey by which this man's spirit had trodden, of the desert he faced ahead of him if the search must fail. 
Was it wrong to warn Jane? Ought this man to be given his chance? Surely here stood before him Jane's mate. Jasper wished that he knew more of the history back of Pierre and the girl. A man could do little but look out for his own interests when he worked in the dark. Which would be the better man for Jane? This Jane so trained, so educated, so far removed superficially from the ungrammatical, bronzed, clumsily dressed, graceful visitor? In every worldly respect, doubtless, Prosper Gale. Only there were Pierre's eyes and the soul looking out of them. Jasper said good-bye half-absently. An hour later he went to call on Jane. He found her done up in an apron and a dust cap cleaning house with astonishing spirit. She and the Bridget, who had recently been substituted for Matilda, were merry. Bridget was sitting on the sill, her upper half shut out, her round brick-colored face laughing through the pane she was polishing. Jane was up a ladder dusting books. She came down to greet Marina, and he saw regretfully the sad change in her face and bearing which his arrival caused. Bridget was sent to the kitchen. Jane made apologies, and sitting on the ladder step, she looked up at him with the look of someone who expects a blow. "'What is it now, Mr. Marina? Have the lawyers begun to—' He had purposely kept her in the dark purposely neglected her, left her to loneliness, in the hope of furthering the purposes of Prosper Gale. "'I haven't come to discuss that, Jane. Soon I hope to have good news for you. But today I've come to give you a hint, a warning, in fact, to prepare you for what I am sure will be a shock.' "'Yes?' She was flushed and breathing fast. Her fingers were busy with the feather duster on her knee, and her eyes were still waiting. "'I had a visitor this morning, Pierre Landis of Wyoming.' She rose, came to him, and clutched his arm. "'Pierre? Pierre?' She looked around her, wild as a captured bird. "'Oh, I must go! I must go!' "'Jane, my child!' He put his arm about her, held her two hands in his. "'You must do nothing of the kind. If you don't want this Pierre to find you, if you don't want him to come into your life, there's an easy, a very simple way to put an end to his pursuit. Don't you know that?' She stared up at him, quivering in his arm. "'No, what is it? How can I? Oh, he mustn't see me! Never, never, never! I made that promise to myself. Jane, you say yourself that you are changed, that you are not the girl he wants to find. She shook her head desolately enough. Oh, no, I'm not. He isn't sure that Jane West is the woman he's looking for. He's following the faintest, the most doubtful of trails. He heard of you from Yarnall. The description of you and your sudden flight made him fairly sure that it must be you. Jasper laughed. I'm taking quite a random, in a sense, 
because I haven't a notion, my dear, who you are, nor what this Pierre has been in your life. If you could tell me. She shook her head. No, she said, no. Very well, then I'll have to go on talking at random. Jane at the Lazy Y Ranch was a woman who had deliberately disguised herself. Jane West in New York is a different woman altogether. But, unless I'm very wrong, she is even more completely disguised from Pierre Landis. If you can convince Pierre that you are Jane West, not any other woman, certainly not the woman he once knew, aren't you pretty safely rid of him for always? She stood still now. He felt that her fingers were cold. Yes, for always. I suppose so. But how can I do that, Mr. Marina? Nothing easier. You're an actress, aren't you? I advised Pierre Landis to stand near the stage exit tonight and watch you get into your motor. Again she clutched at him. Oh, no, don't, don't let him do that. Now, if you will make an effort, look him in the eyes, refuse to show a single quiver of recognition, speak to someone in the most artificial tone you can manage, pass him by, and drive away. Why wouldn't that convince him that you aren't his quarry, eh? She thought, then slowly drew herself away and stood, her head bent, her brows drawn sharply together. Yes, I suppose so. I think I can do it. That is the best plan. She looked at him wildly again. Then it will be over for always, won't it? He'll go away? Yes, my poor child, he will go away. He told me so. Then will you try to forget him, to live your life for its own beautiful sake? I'd like to see you happy, Jane. Would you? She smiled like a pitying mother. Why, I've given up even dreaming of that. That isn't what keeps me going. What is it then, Jane? Oh, a queer notion. She laughed sadly. A kind of kid's notion, I guess, that if you live long, some way, some time, you'll be able to make up things you've done, and that perhaps there'll be another meeting place, a kind of a round-up where you'll be fit to forgive those you love and to be forgiven by them. Jasper walked about. He was touched and troubled. Some minutes later he said doubtfully, Then you'll carry through your purpose of not letting Pierre know you? Yes, I've made up my mind to that. That's what I've got to do. He mustn't find me. We can't meet here in this life, that's certain. There are things that come between, things like bars. She made a strange gesture, as of a prisoner running his fingers across the barred window of a cell. Thank you for warning me. Thank you for telling me what to do. She smiled faintly. I think he will know me anyway, she said, but I won't know him. Never, never. That night the theater was late in emptying itself. Jane West had acted with special brilliance, 
and she was called out again and again. When she came to her dressing room, she was flushed and breathless. She did not change her costume, but drew her fur coat on over the green evening dress she had worn in the last scene. Then she stood before her mirror, looking herself over carefully, critically. Now that the paint was washed off and the flush of excitement faded, she looked haggard and white. Her face was very thin. Its beautiful bones, long sweep of jaw, wide brow, straight, short nose, sharply accentuated. The round throat rising against the fur collar looked unnaturally white and long. She sat down before her dressing table and deliberately painted her cheeks and lips. She even altered the outlines of her mouth, giving it a pursed and doll-like expression, so that her eyes appeared enormous and her nose a little pinched. Then she drew a lock of waved hair down across the middle of her forehead, pressed another at each side close to the corners of her eyes. This took from the unusual breadth of brow and gave her a much more ordinary look. A coat of powder, heavily applied, more nearly produced the effect of a pink-and-white, glassy-eyed doll baby for which she was trying. Afterwards she turned and smiled doubtfully at the astonished dresser. "'Good gracious, Miss West, you don't look like yourself at all.' "'Good!' She said good night and went rapidly down the drafty passages and the concrete stairs. Jasper was standing inside the outer door and applauded her. "'Well done! If it weren't for your pose and walk, my dear, I should hardly have known you myself.' Joan stood beside him, holding her furs close, breathing fast enough the parted painted lips. "'Is he here, do you know?' "'Yes, he's been waiting. I told him you might be late. Now keep your head. Everything depends upon that. Can you do it?' "'Oh, yes. Is the car there? I won't have to stop?' "'Not an instant. But give him a good looking over so that he'll be sure, and don't change the expression of your eyes. Feel, make yourself feel inside that he's a stranger.' You know what I mean. Good night, my dear. Good luck. I'll call you up as soon as you get home, that is, after I've seen your pursuer safely back to his rooms. But this last sentence was addressed to himself. Joan opened the door and stepped out into the chill dampness of the April night. The white arc of electric light beat down upon her as she came forward, and it fell as glaringly upon the figure of Pierre. He had pushed forward from the little crowd of nondescripts always waiting at a stage exit, and stood, bareheaded, just at the door of her motor drawn up by the curb. She saw him instantly, and from the first their eyes met. It was a horrible moment for Joan. What it was for him she could tell by the tense pallor of his keen, bronzed face. The eyes she had not seen for such an agony of years, the strange, deep, iris-colored eyes, there they were now, searching her. 
she stopped her heart in its beating, she stopped her breath, stopped her brain. She became for those few seconds just one thought. I have never seen you. I have never seen you. She passed so close to him that her fur touched his hand, and she looked into his face with a cool, half-disdainful glitter of a smile. "'Step aside, please,' she said. "'I must get in.' Her voice was unnaturally high and quite unnaturally precise. Pierre said one word, a hopeless word. "'Joan!' It was a prayer. It should have been, "'Be Joan!' Then he stepped back, and she stumbled into shelter. At the same instant another man, a man in evening dress, hastily prevented her man from closing the door. "'Miss West, may I see you home?' Before she could speak, could do more than look, Prosper Gale had jumped in, the door slammed, the car began its whirr, and they were gliding through the crowded, brilliant streets. Joan had bent forward and was rocking to and fro. "'He called me Joan!' she gasped over and over. "'He called me Joan!' "'Was that Pierre?' Prosper had been forewarned by Jasper and had planned his part. She kept on rocking, holding her hands on either side of her face. "'I must go away!' If I see him again, I shall die. I could never do that another time. Oh, God! His hand touched me. He called me Joan. I must go. Prosper did not touch her, but his voice, very friendly, very calm, had an instantaneous effect. I will take you away. She laughed shakily. Again? she asked and shamed him into silence. But after a while he began very reasonably, very patiently, "'I can take you away so that you need not be put through this unnecessary pain. I can arrange it with Morina. If Pierre sees you often enough, he will be sure to recognize you. Joan, I did not deserve that again, and you know it. I am a changed man.' If you don't know that now I have the heart of, of devotion, of service toward you, you are indeed a blind and stupid woman. But you do know it. You must. She sat silent beside him, the long and slender hand between her face and him. I can take you away, he went on presently, and keep you from Pierre until he has given up his search and has gone west again and I can take you at once, in a day or two. Your understudy can fill the part. This engagement is almost at an end. I can make it up to Marina. After all, if we go, we shall be doing Betty and him a service. Joan flung out her hands recklessly. Oh, she cried, what does it matter? Of course I'll go. I'd run into the sea to escape Pierre. She leaned back against the cushioned seat, rolled her head a little from side to side like a person in pain. "'Take me away,' she repeated. 
I believe that if I stay, I shall go mad. I'll go anywhere, with anyone. Only take me away. End of Book 2, Chapter 11 Recording by Roger Moline